Chapter Seventeen of the Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I never understood how Oscar Wilde kept up his scholarship and lived in touch with the literary progress of his time. I hardly ever saw him read anything beyond a newspaper. Newspapers he disposed of very quickly. The paper would be snatched up, glanced over, rapidly mastered and thrown to the ground after a tiny strip had been torn off an edge, rolled into a pellet, and put into his mouth. I have seen Le Figaro, thus disposed of in two minutes, less than the tombe de fumée une cigarette. The bulkier British papers might take a little longer, but not much. Yet there was nothing in any paper that had thus passed through his hands which had escaped his attention, nothing of any importance, that is to say, and, curiously enough, even when he was in jail, he seemed quite au courant with what was going on outside. On one occasion when I visited him, with a special order from the Home Secretary, at Wandsworth Prison, I mentioned that that morning the news had been made public that Mrs. Langtree's jewels had been stolen from some bank. He knew all about it, and was commenting on the matter when the warder interrupted and said that we were to restrict our conversation to business. How he acquired his information at Wandsworth I do not know, for I never spoke with him about his prison life. At Reading Jail, as we now know, he was regularly supplied by one of the warders with a morning paper daily, and with a certain number of literary weeklies also. During the last two or three months of his stay in Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde read his daily chronicle regularly, but the manner of his reading was not that of the old days. He read slowly, holding the paper up to the light, and standing up to do so. Quote, he read every line in the paper, and I am not sure that he did not peruse the advertisements too. Unquote. One day, Horesco referens, when he was absorbed in his daily chronicle, he heard steps outside his door. He had barely had the time to fold the newspaper up into some sort of small packet, and to thrust it behind him on the little trestle table at which he worked, when a key snarled in the lock of the door of his cell. It was thrown open, and Major Nelson entered on one of his frequent visits to his distinguished prisoner. Oscar Wilde, drawn up at attention, stood masking with his body the table on which lay the folded paper. His anxiety must have been tremendous, for here was a grave offence on his part, and on the part of the person who had supplied him with the paper— not for pay but from friendship a far graver one as serious a breach of prison regulations as can well be conceived for oscar wilde discovery meant the loss of major nelson's confidence and of all the little privileges which had been granted him for the purveyor it meant ruin and possibly imprisonment the interview was a longer one than usual, the Major's solicitude for his prisoner prompting him to ask him several kindly questions, heaping as many coals of fire on Oscar Wilde's head. And all the while the chronicle was there in full view, had the Governor happened to glance at the little table on which De Profundis was being written. Fortune, however, favoured the audacious, and Major Nelson eventually retired without having detected the gross breach of prison regulations which had been committed. Nor did this narrow escape teach the accomplices anything, for the one kept bringing and the other kept reading the morning paper, 
every day until wilde left prison to give him the chronicle to read said the purveyor was easy enough as i had it delivered to me at the prison but what gave me a lot of trouble was getting him the weeklies that he wanted because i could not have those sent to the prison as that would have attracted attention prison warders don't read spectators and saturday reviews i had to go out into the town to fetch them and was often anxious lest my absence might be noticed and then there was always the risk of my being questioned as to what i'd been to fetch and what it was for he had few if any books with him in paris he seemed to know his favourite authors by heart meredith for instance he had a great admiration for who has forgotten his curious criticism of meredith which he puts into the mouth of vivian in his essay the decay of lying as to which criticism the layman may well be excused if he remain ignorant whether it is intended to be favourable or the reverse ah meredith who can define him his style is chaos illuminated by flashes of lightning as a writer he has mastered everything except language as a novelist he can do everything except tell a story as an artist he is everything except articulate somebody in shakespeare touchstone i think talks about a man who is always breaking his shins over his own wit and it seems to me that this might serve as a basis for a criticism of meredith's method but whatever he is he is not a realist or rather i would say that he is a child of realism who is not on speaking terms with his father by deliberate choice he has made himself a romanticist he has refused to bow the knee to baal and after all even if the man's fine spirit did not revolt against the noisy assertions of realism his style would be quite sufficient of itself to keep life at a respectful distance he frequently quoted meredith to me i think one of his favourite passages was one in the egoist where someone sees himself mirrored in someone else's eyes sees his own reflection and hugs it he quoted meredith to me frequently and i gather that he considered him the foremost british novelist but i never saw a volume of meredith in his hands nor any copies of the novelist's works in any house where he lived meredith i think did not largely reciprocate wilde's admiration i met him for the first time just after wilde's conviction and in company with henry james had a long drive with him he was monologuing most of the time and mainly about wilde he seemed to be sorry for his fate but expressed as far as i remember no particular sympathy with him and certainly said nothing to indicate that the cutting short of oscar wilde's career was a cruel blow to british literature he had found the words carnal insanity to explain wilde's aberration and seemed to like the expression for he frequently repeated it it was useless to attempt to lead him to say this or that for he had a convenient deafness which enabled him to ignore any questions and to monopolise the conversation with a soliloquial exposition of his own views swinburne was another writer for whom oscar wilde had a very great admiration and who had none at all for oscar wilde when i first met oscar wilde in paris he was always talking about swinburne and he told me that it was the fact that as a young undergraduate at oxford swinburne had had the run of monkton milne's library 
and had dipped deeply into the arcana of that gentleman's collection that had set his mind on the subjects which so shocked the poet laureate he also told me a story of a banquet at this nobleman's country house where the lampaderies were female and nude and he asserted that swinburne's concupiscence was purely cerebral and for the very excellent reason that a riding accident had put the poet out of any lists but those of fancy two or three years after oscar wilde's death i received a letter apropos of what i forget from the pines putney from watts dunton all i knew about the writer was that he was an author and that he lived with swinburne for whom i had then as i have now an intense admiration amounting almost to worship i was accordingly delighted when after an exchange of several letters with le nommé watts dunton the latter informed me that swinburne meant to do himself the pleasure of writing to me in person i was vastly pleased at the honour and distinction which were to be bestowed upon me and in answering watts dunton's letter i told him how proud a letter from swinburne would make me i mentioned among other things that it was oscar wilde who had first drawn my attention to the wonderful beauties of his friend's poetry and i added that i was even then engaged on a small book relating the story of my friendship with oscar wilde and that letter closed hermetically the correspondence between the pines putney hill and the villa blank at parame as i received no answer from watts dunton nor the promised letter from swinburne i wrote again but never a word came across the sea in the end it dawned upon me that my statement that wilde had been my friend and that his memory was still cherished by me had horrified the virtuous and liberal-minded academe of putney hill so that i was to be cut off from all communion with them i was rather amused because from the point of view of mrs grundy swinburne ranks as a poet of the most corrupting influence i remember losing the entree to a good house in the west end because i mentioned casually at dinner there that i was a great admirer of swinburne and certainly many of swinburne's poems are not what one would like one's sons and daughters to read and again it could not be because wilde had outraged the secular law or was supposed to have done so that swinburne had such abhorrence for him for one of the strong appeals that swinburne always made to us youth was that he was an anarchist living in defiance of the law secular or divine i was sorry not to get swinburne's letter but by that time i had grown accustomed to all kinds of slights snubs setbacks losses and so forth because of my friendship for wilde and because i never concealed it i do not care tuppence one way or the other about it and as for public opinion having spent most of my life in manufacturing it i have that contempt for it which most manufacturers have for the goods they turn out the fact remains that because in the year of wilde's downfall i did not care to repudiate him but came over to london to be near him just at the time when alfred douglas was going abroad to be away from him my professional income diminished by fifty per cent and really never recovered and the amusing thing is that now that the work has been done and that thanks to robert ross myself and alfred douglas oscar wilde has come back into his own the very people who used to revile me in the old days for sticking to my friend forcing me even to legal action to defend my attitude 
now that it is an honour and a distinction to have been wilde's friend say and write that in speaking of my friendship for wilde i am arrogating to myself what never existed except in my imagination not many months ago in a publication called the tatler erratum for the tatler read the bystander i apologise to the former for my lapse in memory End erratum there was a reference to my well-pretending friendship with wilde in an article written no doubt by one of those persons in fleet street who after ernest dowson's death in my cottage circulated the rumour that i had done very well out of ernest dowson just to nail that particular lie with reference to my friendship with wilde to the counter and to give the persons referred to no further excuse for the exercise of their spleen i reproduce in these pages two facsimiles one being the title page of the copy of the ballad of reading jail which oscar wilde sent me and the other a letter from mrs oscar wilde in which she says that i am the only friend that her husband cared to see in jail it may be remarked en passant that if our efforts to bring oscar wilde back to repute and honour had failed these very people like the writer of the article above referred to would never have missed an opportunity of charging me with having been wilde's friend in doing this i should have considered that they were conferring upon me an honour and a tribute but such would not have been their intention from the very first day of our meeting in paris wilde said that we must become great friends and he certainly behaved towards me in the friendliest way he gave up much of his time to be in my company in which he seemed to take pleasure and neglected on my behalf many acquaintances which might have been useful to him he was glad to take me anywhere and to introduce me to anybody that he knew and it was by him that i was first presented to sarah bernhardt it was also by him or rather through him that i saw sarah bernhardt for the last time in this world unless hazard should ever bring me into her presence again wilde introduced me to her at the vaudeville theatre and the first sight i got of phaedra was barefooted and in her chemise peeping out from her dressing-room into the little parlour which formed part of her loge she spoke in a very friendly way to mon cher oscar and seemed as delighted to see him as jean richepin who was in the parlour referred to and who with folded arms and the scowl of an othello appeared horribly jealous of any male that approached the divine sarah most emphatically did not wilde afterwards told me that the reason sarah and he were such good friends was that when she first came to london he was able to render her various little services in stageland and in the press and you see robert i never made love to her as a matter of fact at that time i was dreadfully in love with another and more beautiful actress sarah often said that what had so pleased her about oscar wilde was that he had not courted her who hated being courted had no use for enamoured men even of the highest rank and liked for once in a while to meet a man who treated her as a fellow artist as a comrade which was what oscar wilde had done in my little book the story of an unhappy friendship i have related at length how sarah bernhardt behaved to wilde and casually remarked to myself when he was in prison 
how i went at his bidding to offer to sell her the copyright of salome for four hundred pounds how she wept and wrung her hands how she finally promised to see what she could do and thereafter spent her time in avoiding me who enthusiastically had telegraphed to wilde who was in holloway and who was in desperate straits for money wherewith to provide for his defence that sarah was coming to the rescue she kept me on the run for several days having me put off with various excuses day after day finally she sent me word that she would write me and though that is twenty years ago i am still waiting for her communication it occurred to me afterwards that if i had only kept my eyes open during that first interview with her on the subject i could have spared oscar wilde a great disappointment and myself a number of very humiliating calls at the house in the boulevard Pereire. i had been as usual received by sarah in her studio which was lined with cages of animals and birds and just behind sarah as she sat by my side wringing her hands and dabbing her eyes over the sad fate of ce cher oscar si bon si doux a large obscene ape with a multicoloured posterior was disporting itself as i thought after its kind since then and thinking the matter over i have come to the conclusion that that friendly ape was trying by its gestures and grimaces to warn me against believing anything that the actress was telling me to disbelieve her expressions of sorrow and sympathy for my friend and to place no reliance whatever on her promises the beast certainly did everything he could to cast ridicule on the pathetic scene which was being enacted by sarah for my especial benefit he stuck out his tongue he winked a deliberate eye he smacked his posterior as he turned it upon us as though to draw my attention to its many iridescent hues as the americans say he was trying to wise me and i dare say if he could have spoken he would have said well if you think that madame will risk a centime of her money on a friend who has fallen into hopeless ruin and disgrace you must be a bigger fool than you look i did not understand the simian warning and the result was a great deal of annoyance and no doubt to oscar a very bitter experience in a life which thereafter was to be a bitter one to paraphrase a subsequent remark of his quoted by arthur ransom i say no doubt because beyond the remark sarah is hopeless i fear in the letter he wrote to me from holloway he never once referred to the matter afterwards he never said a word in reproach of her conduct but took it as philosophically as he took all the blows that fate levelled at him as things have turned out it was of course extremely fortunate for the wild estate and family that sarah after giving me her formal promise did not keep her word she would have acquired for three or four hundred pounds a piece of literary and dramatic property worth obamo two hundred times either amount and with that tremendous profit the satisfactory feeling of having done a kind action i do not know whether oscar wilde ever saw sarah again after his return to paris for he never mentioned her name i doubt it however he was very sensitive about his disgrace and would not go counter to any possibility of a slight after the duchess of padua had been dispatched on her luckless journey to california oscar wilde turned to the writing of the sphinx 
when i first fixed the date when he wrote this poem wild scholiasts contested my accuracy and tried to establish that it was composed many years previously namely during his years at oxford eighteen seventy four to eighteen seventy eight and that because it contains certain lines transferred from the newdigate prize poem ravenna i have scarcely seen some twenty summers cast their green for autumn's gaudy liveries i do not deny that it is quite possible that oscar wilde may at oxford have commenced some poem parts of which he may have used when he came to write the sphinx in paris but he certainly never told me so and gave me the impression that it was a fresh opus on which he was engaged and there is no doubt that what originally suggested this poem to him was a poem by one of the french writers baudelaire i think it was whom he had particularly studied during his parisian days in eighteen eighty three this poem begins with some lines describing how in the poet's apartment as in his heart a monstrous cat se promène was oscar wilde reading baudelaire at oxford i don't think so and it certainly was baudelaire who suggested the sphinx anyhow i saw and heard him composing the poem and as i have related elsewhere to the amusement of alfred douglas i helped wilde with a rhyme or two which he used in it stuart mason in his admirable bibliography a book indispensable to wilde students gives on page three nine six a reduced facsimile of a page of the manuscript of the sphinx which he thinks seems to bear out the fact that portions of this poem were written as early as the author's oxford days and that because this page was one on which wilde exercising his talents as a caricaturist had drawn a couple of comic dons the verse written on this page however begins follow some roving lion's spore and the word i have italicised spore was not in wilde's oxford days one that was known or used in england it is a dutch word which came to us with many other boer words much later and with regard to dons who are usually comic they lend themselves the caricature anywhere and at any time however thanks to mr ross my version of the history of the sphinx is the one on permanent record at the british museum in nineteen o nine robert ross presented the manuscript of this poem which had been given to him by c ricketts to the british museum where according to stuart mason it is catalogued amongst the additional manuscripts as three seven nine four two the sphinx a poem written at paris in eighteen eighty three Sherard, life of oscar wilde nineteen o six page two three eight an incomplete manuscript of this poem and a typewritten draft of the same with manuscript corrections by the author were sold at sotheby's on twenty seventh july nineteen eleven for one hundred and forty three pounds to bernard quaritch on several pages of the above manuscript there are notes for rhymes which reminds me to put on record that wilde much to my astonishment told me that he considered a rhyming dictionary a very useful accessory to the liar i had thought that true poets never used such a book but then i was young at the time End of chapter seventeen